Yeah, I felt like that the whole time because from the time I was 15 to the time I moved out, I was home. He was not home. So the only time we would really spend together was Game of Thrones Sundays. And that was really it. So the rest of the time was just arguments if he got home or if I was out. I tried to go to my friends' houses as much as possible and spend time over there. Stand your ground as much as you can. And if a law is broken, call the cops because you will not be the one that gets in trouble. I wish I had told myself that so many times. I always feared that like my parents, because the incident with my mom, I got her sent to an, a mental institution. And she's still mad at me for that. And I always feared that they would lie to the cops and have me sent. Or I was, I was in fear of going to foster care because I didn't have another parent. I wish I would have said something to somebody at school. I did not say enough to my teachers. And I wish I would have because I protected my dad a lot. I'd say tell somebody. This is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. I'm Jason Blair. That's Shay Vishna, the host of True Compass, a podcast that goes beyond the surface in telling true crime stories and is focused on cultivating awareness around many issues. Shay's interest in true crime goes back to when she was a little girl, when she wanted to be a forensic scientist. By the time Shay made it to high school, she switched her focus to law. While in college, Shay dropped out of the University of Houston because she was struggling with mental health issues that she says were causing her to, quote, get really sick. After dropping out in months and months of doctor's appointments, Shay found out that she actually had hyperpots, an illness that results in relapsing and remitting loss of plasma in her blood and surrounding tissue that can lead to fatigue, brain fog, blurred vision, heart palpitations, and a wide variety of other debilitating conditions. She was also diagnosed with a condition associated with POTS, known as Ehlers-Danos Syndrome, a genetic connective tissue disorder that leads to loose joints, joint pain, skin problems, and other symptoms that can also lead to challenges as severe as scoliosis, chronic pain, joint dislocation, and even aortic dissection. During that same period, Shea also received a diagnosis of autism, which is often underdiagnosed in girls and women. Autism is a neurodevelopmental disorder that includes marked impairment when it comes to social communication and also restricted and repetitive patterns of behavior. People with autism also struggle with common social situations, sensory input, and having a restricted list of interests. Psychiatry has long classified autism as a mental illness, although it might be better looked at through the lens of neurodiversity, which is the natural diversity in human thinking and experience with different strengths and different weaknesses. These diagnoses 
led Shay to abandon her dreams of finishing school and becoming an attorney because of the challenges of both. While she was in college, Shay constantly listened to true crime podcasts, and her aunt even started one. Shay says she was obsessed, but felt that none of the podcasts she listened to took a Gen Z point of view. After attending an annual true crime podcast event one year and meeting many creators, she realized that she could bring that point of view to the true crime world. Shay also shared mutual friends with Jason Landry, a Texas college student who disappeared under mysterious circumstances on December 13, 2020. Landry's abandoned vehicle was discovered in the early morning hours on a rural roadway just outside of Lulling, Texas, a former boom town in the center of the state that was once known as, quote, the toughest town in Texas. That case is still unsolved. Shea felt her experiences in middle school, high school, and college taught her that being raised by a father who is a Marine and an uncle who is a diplomat gave her many tools and a level of safety and awareness in everyday situations that many of her peers, she felt, didn't possess. Ultimately, that led Shay to start True Compass in her quest to bring a proactive approach to true crime, not just telling the stories of crimes, but also drawing out the lessons that can be learned that can help people stay safe. Today, we're going to discuss the needs of Gen Z, the lessons that can be learned from suffering, and why focusing on safety is not limited to crime, but it's about emotional, psychological, legal, and physical safety, and why she decided to focus on helping people learn ways to stay safe in this world. Hey, Shay. I uh, just wanted to thank you for joining me. I have thoroughly enjoyed listening to your uh, podcast. I am, you know, I tripped across True Compass because of our shared mutual friend, Robert Palmer, who's the host of the Broken Systems uh, or Broken System podcast and uh, somebody that I've had on. And he really encouraged me. He was like, you have to check this podcast out. I know as a podcaster who spends lots of time you know, interviewing, one of the things that happens is we stop listening as much, or at least I stop listening to others. But he said, this is a voice um, that you should uh, really hear. And one of the things that really sort of struck me about the work that you were doing uh, within the broader true crime community was that you were focused beyond sort of like, you know, telling the stories of the actual crime, but also sort of exploring what lessons we could learn um, to keep ourselves and our loved ones safe. And I thought that was like a really, really different approach um, for a field that's sort of like been, been, it been criticized for being too focused on the entertainment side. I thought it was interesting you brought that voice. And so I'm thrilled to have you on. Thank you so much. And that really does mean a lot to me because I did want to not focus on the entertainment side and I really wanted it to be a place where people could come and actually learn and grow themselves and their knowledge. 
So thank you. Yeah, no, I feel like you've from the from the very first episode on, you know, I know in your first episode by the by the end of it, the, it was a rich, robust discussion about safety and good advice for people, in addition to sort of telling the story. And it's just not something that I'm used to in the space. And it, it's like a it's a really cool opportunity because so many people are interested in true crime in general. But it gives them this added benefit of having something good come out of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, which is very important nowadays with all the negative that's everywhere. Yeah, surrounding us in this universe. Um, so I was going to just sort of like step back a little bit. I, I know we've uh, sort of discussed this in our back and forth, but... One of the things that I really found interesting about your story, you know, first of all, you're relatively young as a podcaster. How old are you now? I'm about to turn 25. Okay, so you're about to turn 25. But, you know, we had talked about uh, some of the struggles that you have had in life, you know, struggles growing up, struggles in college. And I was just curious about what growing up was like, what your experience sort of like trying to get through college were like, and then also sort of like, you know, suffering at that time with undiagnosed illnesses and trying to push your way through. Just curious about what that whole experience was like to the point where you got your diagnoses. Well, growing up, I I was adopted by my stepdad at eight years old. So I didn't know my real father, and I still don't. I have met my biological sisters. I found them through Facebook, so that was very fun. Interesting. How'd you find them? What was the new? I unless they've started uploading DNA to Facebook, I'm not. I'm... No, no, no. no. <laughs> my mom actually just randomly. It was Thanksgiving of 2018. My mom had told me, "Oh, by the way, you have a sister." That's older than you through your biological father. She gave me a first name and that was it. So I hit Facebook and I started searching and I found her. I messaged her. And then that next day, she messaged me back and said, I've been looking for you for 13 years. Wow. Holy crap. What did that feel like? It was insane. So we actually FaceTimed as soon as I got that message. And... We were both just bawling in tears. It was it was surreal because um, I I'd only ever had one other sibling, and he's nine years older than me. Mm. Um, so having a a sister was being able to say, "Oh, I have a sister," was truly incredible. And yeah. as soon as we Facetimed, she goes, "I don't know if this is the right time to tell you, but there was a third. <laughs> there are more. <laughs> so uh, we ended up finding my little sister's mom on MySpace and then on Facebook, messaged her and found my little sister. So in a short period of time, she had gone from 13 years of searching you to having found you. You had gone from not knowing you had any sisters to knowing that you had one sister that you found and then a second sister. Like all of this is happening over a matter of days, weeks. It took us 24 hours total. Wow. Yeah. Wow. 
that how do how do you think that changed your did that change your perspective on things or, or oh absolutely um i definitely have a different view of family than most people because i didn't grow up with my siblings um and i didn't know my dad from when i was really young so i don't have any baby pictures with my dad and stuff like that and that's always been kind of hard for yeah. both me and my dad but whenever I found my sister, it was kind of bittersweet for both my dad and me because my dad realized, oh, this person got to interact with my child as a baby when mm. I did not. And that was kind of hard to overcome. But yeah. we eventually did. And yeah, just definitely changed my outlook on family and then i always think there's another one out there <laughs> possibly <laughs> even though we have no proof of it um, no. well. but yeah i'm always on the lookout and i'm always like oh i've i've gotten really good at looking at faces because of it because when i was looking through every single bailey i could find on the internet uh that was I, her first name or bailey yeah my yeah. sister's name wow. so as soon as i found one that you know i i looked at a picture of my dna donor and i looked at a picture of whoever was on the screen and i was like nope that's not it and that's how i got really good at seeing faces and if people are related and now it's like a special party trick of mine. What was it? What was it that told you when you saw her picture? What was it that made you say that's the one? Um, her smile was mm. first. Me and her have the same exact smile. It's mm. a little bit too small for our face. Mm. And our dad had the same exact one. And that was it. And then her eyes. Our eyes are the same color. Oh, wow. And then the first time we ended up meeting in person, we were writing things down, like just like jotting things down. I forget what it was for. But we looked at it and we have the same exact handwriting. Oh, wow. Yeah, I've heard those stories of, I remember there was this experiment that was done with um, twins and, uh, you know, it probably wasn't the world's most ethical experiment, but it was in New York, I think, maybe New York and Pennsylvania. Yes, the uh, yep. adoption agencies. Yes, correct. And that some of those twins then later met, having never lived with each other and had similar mannerisms. Yeah. So me and my sister, we have similar mannerisms, uh, similar ways we walk. Mm -hmm. um, we both write the same way we have similar taste in food and we didn't grow up with each other wow that's good where did where did they grow up where did you grow up? so i grew up in the dallas area she kind of moved around she was in oklahoma mainly and chicago area mm -hmm. and my little sister's always been in san antonio area okay Okay, that's wild. That's such a such a wild thing to just even notice the same taste in foods, and you know, it, it kind of reminds me of the idea that like we're all more connected. Like in your example, by in a biological way, but we are really more connected as people than we think, and never really know. Oh, absolutely! Um, and it's been really cool to like just 
get to know each other. Yeah. Because, I mean, as siblings, you usually know everything about each other. And with us, it's like strangers. Like our little sister, we still, she's very quiet, she's very introverted. Um, so we haven't got to spend much time with her yet. But like me and my older sister, we just get along very well. And it's like we have never left each other's side when we're together. So it's pretty cool to watch. Yeah, that is awesome. So this, so this is sort of like around. So how old are you at that time? This is 2018. Yeah, I'm so 19 like at that point. 19 at that point, and you find out, wow. So are you in college at that point where you're figuring yes. this out? So oh, no. I went to college in Corpus Christi first. When I was in Corpus Christi, I got pretty depressed, and I got down to a very low weight. And so I decided it would be best for me to switch colleges so I packed up everything and moved. Were to you there. at uh, the Texas A&M cam- campus that was there? Yes. Yeah. So my mom, when she was working on her educational PhD and we were living in Houston, she took classes there. The, yeah. yeah. It's a beautiful so, campus. It's gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, I absolutely loved it. Um, besides uh, some of the people there. <laughs> Ex-friends. <laughs> right. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> So I packed up. I went to Houston, which was closer to my sister, um, who lived in Houston at the time. And so we could hang out. So I went to Houston. I joined a student government campaign. So we were running for student government elections. And I was the social media manager for that. I was studying political science and law. When I dropped out, I had finished my law minor and mm-hmm. was about, let me do some math, two semesters away from graduating. Okay. And I got really sick. I dropped a lot of weight again two years later. Um, and so I dropped out. I started going to the doctors a bunch and we figured what out what was it like for you when you were there so you're two semesters away you're really you're really close and was it physical pain that started or well, was it like- 2020 was my junior or yeah junior year of college so when the pandemic hit i was a junior in college but around in the middle of like year 2 3 and for hours wise so I had to move back home during the pandemic, but I was still doing classes. And those classes are hard whenever you're online. I don't think a lot of the older generation understands how much more difficult that made college for us younger generation. Unless they were teaching their kids at home during that time. Yeah. It was yeah. a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 So it was just awful. I've got to say those classes were hell. It was 12 hours a day for every single class you had to do work. So I was just exhausted physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, By the time COVID had ended, like that first semester of COVID had ended. And then I was starting again that next semester 
still at home. the fall of 2020. Yeah, yeah. still at home, uh, still living with my dad. And me and my dad were fighting all the time. So it was just really hard to focus on those classes and to have to deal with a, a drunk. Yeah. And... And all the anxiety that existed simply because of the pandemic and all the changes, like yeah. talking about the classes. I mean, I think it was super stressful for most people, but it sounds like it was particularly hard for you. Yeah. And my dad's a single dad. So it's, and to him, I'm his only child. So it's not like I had anybody to help me or to back me up when I was with him. So it's, it's really just a one on one, 24 seven when, you're in a house with somebody like that. Sort of already isolated by the pandemic and then isolated yeah. even more by not having anybody else at home other than him. Yeah. So I finally left. I went to my uncle's in Oklahoma and I did my next spring semester of 2021 there. Um, but while I was there, I, as soon as I got away from my dad, I just shut down. My body just wanted to sleep all the time. It it was just I couldn't get up. If I did get up, I was nauseous. Mm. Um, and then my pain just everywhere, all over my body every day. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. So I called my mom. I told her what was going on. She was like, okay drop out of school, we'll get you back home. And so I did. And I went back home. She took me to a ton of doctors. And we finally got a diagnosis that I had hyperadrenic POTS, hyperadrenergic POTS, and Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And whenever we went to go get my mental health assessment done, they were like, you're autistic. And I was like, cool. <laughs> like this is starting to make sense yeah so um everything just kind of like came together and life made sense again and yeah at I least really, you had something to do if that makes sense to do about it instead yeah of just being in so pain. i was able to you know like after a couple months i went no contact with my dad um and then after a couple months i told him about my diagnosis and that I dropped out of college and everything. So I told him and he was like, okay, I get it. I understand. When are you going to go back to school? And I was like, that's not in the books anymore, dude. Yeah. It sounds like that was a real long road. Yeah. So um, I just decided... I'm going to try to work. So I worked for a little bit at a bakery. And I was like, nope, I can't do this. Was it the physical part of it that was difficult? or? Yeah. So I was passing out at the bakery. Mm, wow. <laughs> and throwing up and having to run to the bathroom. And it was just awful. Um, and you kept on trying? You're yeah. A, you're a fighter. <laughs> I kept trying. Um which like all throughout high school, I worked three jobs. Wow. Um, college I worked. So um, I was a nanny in college and I was just always listening to true crime podcasts. So once I figured out I couldn't do anything physically, I was like, you know what? I'll throw myself into the true crime world. I'm already, I already love it. So might as well. 
And here I am today. Yeah. You know, you said something interesting before. You know, you said that you were diagnosed with the uh, autism diagnosis and it was like, you woohoo. And, you know, one of the interesting things that I found in like working with people with autism or even people with ADHD is even though, you know, it's in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, I, this is a simple test for me. Yeah. I always ask myself, if everyone had this illness in society, quote unquote, and everyone had this illness, and would the people who have it be able to function in the world? So like I'm diagnosed with bipolar. Mm-hmm. If everyone had bipolar, we would not have a very functioning world. It would be a pretty wild world. It would be a fun world, but it, it would not be a particularly functioning world. But the thing for people with autism or ADHD is it's just because it's outside of the normative. It's outside of the norm is why we sort of look at it as, um, you know, diagnose it as an illness. But if everyone had autism or everyone had ADHD, they would be the ones functioning and we would not be the ones functioning in the society that they created. So I tend to think while there are elements that, you know, where where treatment is appropriate and helpful, autism is way more about like just neurodiversity, like that idea that, you know, people, some people are left-handed, some people are right-handed, some people process things in a certain way, or they make social connections in different ways. And, you know, so when you said, woohoo, that you found the diagnosis, you know, uh, 20 years ago, I would have run into a lot more people who it would have felt like the end of the world for them. If yeah. That makes sense. Um, for me, it was pretty relieving because like as a young child, I, I had a really hard time making friends and I was always bullied for liking weird things. And I was a gymnast, so I was just weird in general because we are locked in a gym for 40 hours a week. <laughs> um, so being a weird kid, I was just bullied a ton. And I finally realized why whenever I got that diagnosis. And I understood a lot more about like sensory needs whenever I got that diagnosis and stuff like that. Things like overstimulation, yeah, sensory items. Tell me more about that. So when I was little, um, my family, I remember like my mom and my dad would buy me sweaters when I was little and they would be so itchy and I'd hate wearing them. Mm. And they'd be so mad because they'd buy me all these expensive clothes and I'd hate wearing them. But I realized I couldn't go to school in that because I would have an absolute meltdown. And if I did, or if I went out in that, I would always have a meltdown and they'd they'd wonder like why I'm being so whiny or like whatever. And I finally understood like I was overstimulated. It wasn't how I was behaving. It's just I was... It's not, not that the, you were too sensitive or that something psychologically was going wrong with you. It's that yeah, you're, yeah. It, you're going through an experience that other people wearing that sweater are not. Yeah. So I was just overstimulated and I finally like realized, oh my God, that just that makes sense. Um, and then another big thing was food textures. There was one thing I remember uh, from my childhood. We were at the original Pancake House, which if anybody in Dallas is listening, you know what I'm talking about. 
And my <laughs> dad had ordered orange juice for us and it had pulp in it. And I was gagging the whole time, but he made me drink that orange juice. Mm. And I was like gagging and about to throw up the whole time. And as soon as I got that diagnosis, I was like, it wasn't me. <laughs> yeah, because textures is another thing, like sensitivity to textures or even touching certain surfaces. Yeah, like microfiber is a big one for me. Um, gross fleece. I think mm, people know what I'm talking about, like yeah. weird blankets, fleece mm-hmm. blankets. Um, I hate that. The big heavy ones with the fleece on the outside, yeah. Yeah. Um, the, so it so it ultimately ended up being like eye opening for you because you were able to like one put so much from your past into context, but probably also like giving yourself permission on some level to like you yeah know I mean? yeah not- like being able to be myself more often. Um, that was a big thing for me because uh, when I was little, I. My, I was always really excited over things, and my parents are introverts. My dad's a Marine, and, you know, they're I'm-going-to-stay-in-my-lane kind of people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I would always get really excited, and my dad would have to tell me to calm down and, like, you know, act like a lady or whatnot. Um, so allowing myself to get excited over things again has been really fun. Um, Well, and that's also one of the things like a lot of people with autism sort of like get criticized for like what we would call restricted interests, right? Like having very narrow interests that can look like obsession. And one of the things I've noticed with clients, like people will try to get them to sort of like broaden their aperture and diversify and not do this one thing that they're really interested in. And when they get the autism diagnosis, like almost all the parents are like, oh, oops. Like, I kind of screwed up here because, and then I think it's like very freeing for the person who gets the diagnosis. Like I am interested in magic the dragon or or whatever like before game of thrones became big i was a huge game of thrones fan um my parents allowed me to start watching when it first came out i was 11 years old they would watch it on sundays and on mondays i would watch and they would fast forward through the sex scenes until (laughs) my parents got divorced and then my dad and i would watch it on sundays together And if you could see in the camera right now, I have a ton of Game of Thrones stuff around me. And my dogs are also named after Game of Thrones. Uh, What are their names? (laughs) What are their names? I have Arya and I have Kira. Ah, Kira and Arya. Good choices. So are you a Jon Snow fan or are you a Jon Snow management fan? I... (laughs) Am an Arya and Tyrion fan through and through. Okay, so we have that in common. I do love Tyrion's little mind and his trickery, and Arya is just my hero. So we share that in common. It's very funny. Everybody told me before I saw saw Game of Thrones that I'm like Littlefinger, and I'll love that. I was like, (laughs) so wrong. Tyrion is my man, and I want to marry Arya. (laughs) Yeah, so I actually, whenever the show started, me and Bran were the same age. Oh, wow. So I pretty much grew up with those Stark kids, if I really think about it. And 
that's been really cool to You're have. like their little sister as the Starks are growing up. Yeah, because yeah. I don't think there's another fan that's my age that was watching since the beginning. And I think that's something really special that me and my dad have forever. And I'm grateful for that. So uh, you were saying uh, along this time, like one of your interests became true crime. When did you when did you start to get interested in that? I know you had mentioned to me once that you had thought about becoming a forensic scientist when you were younger and sort of switched to the law. Like, how did your interest in true crime even start? Um, so when I was really little, actually, um, my a babysitter who lived with us at the time. Her boyfriend was murdered, um, and I remember that being like my first kind of step into the true crime world personally. And I remember how much that affected my mom and affected her. What happened? Um, you can look it up. Uh, it's called the Truett Street Murders in McKinney, Texas. It was basically a robbery gone wrong, and her boyfriend had just not been at been at the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm. Um, yeah, and it was I'm sorry. It was really hard for her, and it still is for her. So, um, how old were you at the time? I was probably two or three years old, and I remember the cops and the media being all there. So that was really my first kind of step into true crime. But as long as I can remember, my mom had always watched Law and Order SVU. So I was always interested in that. I would always watch it with her. So I fell in love with Olivia Benson. And from that moment on, I was like, okay, I'm going to be a forensic scientist. At, I said that at like age eight. Um, and then I was like, okay, I'm going to be a mortician. <laughs> and then... I want to say my sophomore year of high school or going into my sophomore year of high school, we were picking classes for the next year. And I saw that there was a law track and in my school district and there was a forensic track. So I took all the classes needed for both of those. Um, I did constitutional law that year. And then I did like an overview of law enforcement, just like basic general overview. And then that next year, I did all the rest of the classes. And then my senior year, I did forensic science. I did law enforcement. I did mock trial, anything you can imagine. So when I got to college, I felt very prepared and like I had a lot of knowledge. And then I found True Crime Podcast my sophomore year of college. I was like, okay, this is fun. I have nine hours to drive. I could listen to this while I'm driving to college. So that's mm. what I did, and I got obsessed. Um, Helen Gone was the first one I listened to, and I'm still obsessed with Catherine Townsend. What's that? What's the Helen Gone podcast? Uh, Catherine Townsend is an investigative journalist who focuses on, like, smaller cases that you'll you've never heard of out of small towns usually in arkansas uh, she did one in kill devil hills north carolina also mm. but that was the first podcast that i got listening to and i think the investigative journalism i i love investigative journalism 
It's one of my favorites to watch on television. It's one of my favorites to listen to uh, on podcast. And yeah, so I fell in love with that. And then I started expanding into more podcasts and more podcasts. And then my senior year of college, Amanda, my aunt, started her own. So I worked on hers for a little bit. And yeah. What did you do when you were working on hers? Uh, I did some social media stuff. I did oh, some nice. graphics and um, helped with some of the funner episodes, like the ones that they would do for their Patreon and stuff like that. Oh, neat, neat, neat. So you really were able to get your hands in it. Like one of the things that really sort of like stood out to me about your podcast was like the ability to focus on awareness, right? And I, one of the threads that I saw, because when I was listening to the first few episodes, like what was very clear to me was that you were building awareness, but I found this kind of thread through it and thread through what you talk about in general and your social media presence and other places. It's very much about safety, but it's not just about like physical safety from crime. Like you touch on things like emotional safety, you know, psychological safety, like abuse, for example. Yeah. You also talk, you've had, you know, our friend Bob Mata, the defense diaries host and uh, mm -hmm. criminal defense attorney. And you guys were essentially talking about the law, but you were really talking about like legal safety, constitutional rights and protections. And I just found this thread about wanting a lot to of keep A lot of those questions with Bob were just some of my personal, like, I wanted to know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, no. I, I, I believe you. <laughs> But I, what I was curious about, like just in running through that, that line of, of things and topics, like what is it that drives you to want to make the world safer for people? I think after my parents' divorce, I, I didn't feel safe um, wherever I was. And I... I wanted that for other people. I didn't want anybody else to feel in a, be in a situation that they feel like they cannot get out of. Um, and that's mm. a, that's a big drive for me, uh, is thinking about other people that may be going through similar situations that don't have the guidance or the help or somebody to lean on, um, in those situations. So I think being able to be that voice and kind of give somebody some guidance that nobody else may have a perspective on is very important, especially in today's world where people are cruel and we have to deal with um, generations that don't understand my generation. And a lot of kids don't have that family that makes them feel safe. So if mm -hmm. I could allow them to have some knowledge to make themselves feel more secure in their lives. Uh, that's my whole goal. Okay. That, I mean, that makes sense. So like, is what was it? You mentioned the generational piece of it, but you also mentioned that idea of like creating safety is it, are, were those two of the things that you thought were sort of missing and maybe even beyond true crime podcasting and maybe more broadly in society like that focus on sort of helping people and giving them the tools they need and also sort of speaking in a voice that really represented like your generation 
Yeah, um, I think I realized with a lot of my high school teachers, they they taught me so much, and I still speak to a lot of them every single week at least. But yeah, those teachers, they just taught me how to communicate, and they made me feel safe by giving me knowledge. And there's got to give a shout out to my Ewalds, my mock trial coach and my mock trial teacher. They really pushed me to stand up towards adults. They taught me how to do that. And I've got to give them credit for that because without them, I don't think I would have been able to get through high school in general or let alone college. So I, yeah, being able to just stand up to adults is definitely help. I don't know if that answered the question. Yeah, no, it does. <laughs> it sort of it sort of sounds like what you're saying is like you almost didn't get at home that sense of safety that you're trying to give other people, but these teachers in your life were able to give you some of that like strength, safety, tools, knowledge that allowed you to keep yourself like a little bit safe. Do you think that the the things that they sort of taught you and helped you with were part of what gave you the strength to kind of walk away from your dad? Absolutely. I also think podcast helped a lot of that. Um, around the time I left my dad's house, I had started listening to A Little Bit Culty um, by Sarah and Nippy. And What's that about? They are Nixium whistleblowers that started their own podcast about cult survivors and stuff like and Nixium that. And Nixium was like one of those scam slash cult slash um groups, Yeah, they right? were like uh, a new age philosophy cult. Yeah, I remember yes. reading about them. They and then it became a sex cult. Yep. Yeah, so um, I listened to their podcast and... They, and watching The Vow in general, uh, both of those kind of allowed me to see narcissism and how... What was The Vow? What was The Vow? It's the documentary about... Uh, Nixium. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, watching those and listening to that, their episodes... um, allowed me to see what narcissism is and I also found a couple of TikTokers that were alcoholics or recovering alcoholics and they were able to like give me just like some ideas of like okay this is from alcoholism and this is from narcissism and uh, being able to point those two out and then finally being able to be like okay being able to focus on myself and not have to be a parent to my parent, um, especially in my 20s. I I really needed to do that. And um, so, yeah, I, we got in a huge fight on during the snowmageddon of 2021. And that's when I left. Is that when Texas got like a drop of snow and shut down? (laughs) We actually had like one where the power went out. The power went out. (laughs) That's when the power went out. Yeah. So um, 
my dad was drinking that whole time and we were fighting that whole time. And I was trying to get students because uh, I was working on the campaign. I was trying to get students into warm housing and on the phone with Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, trying to get these students into warm housing and get them food and water. And as I'm doing that, I'm being screamed at the whole time. So I, I just couldn't take it anymore. I left that night. I sent him a message that night and said, look, if you want to speak to me, you can write me a letter. You can email me. I don't care. But was I, ne- it, was I it need like some a time. Contrast? Like you were sitting there trying to help people, but he's yelling at you about things that like you perceive to be selfish. And you're like, wait a second, hold on. Yeah, it was it was pretty much just like. I'm just over being a punching bag for everything because like he he's not been able to keep a job in the last couple of years and just everything was piling on on top of me on top of him. So I just needed to get out. I couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't. I just couldn't take him coming home drunk anymore. And like I I just needed to get out and be able to think on my own because everything I would say it was counteracted with no this is why I'm right so I just wanted to be able to like find myself and yeah what did you mean by like when you said and I don't think any kid should have to do this and I know you, you made the point that like at 20 you shouldn't have to be a parent but definitely at like 10 and 15 you shouldn't have to be a parent what did you mean by having to parent your your father? Uh, it was actually kind of both of my parents. Um, mm. I left my mom's house at 15 um, after an incident with her, and I never moved back in. So I really only had my dad. And whenever you are parenting parents, what I mean by that is – I'm having to teach them lessons every day that they should be teaching me. Mm. And that was a very hard conclusion that I had to come to. Um, And I've kind of had to learn how to reparent myself now, especially with the autism diagnosis. Like I'm, Mm. I'm learning how to be myself and express joy in the way I want to. And, so, yeah, it's been a journey. <laughs> right, right. And a heavy, like a heavy burden, because I think that... Um, Another part of that is whenever I was parenting my dad, I was always taking him to and from the bar, which mm. I felt like if I didn't... picking him up. Yeah, so if I didn't, it, there would, I'd have to bail him out of jail, which would be even worse for me. And so so it becomes this cycle of if I don't do this thing that I shouldn't really be doing, I'll have to do this thing that's worse than what I – so did you feel like at some point like I'm enabling madness? Yeah, I felt like that the whole time because like I was – from the time I was 15 to the time I moved out, I was home. He was not home. So – the only time we would really spend together was Game of Thrones Sundays. And that was really it. So the rest of the time was just arguments if he got home or if I was out. I I tried to 
get go to my friends' houses as much as possible and spend time over there. What what message would you have for like kids right now who are sort of sitting at home, you know, like you, sort of in even though you weren't an only child in an only child situation with a parent that is somehow abusive like is there any any advice you'd have for them stand your ground as much as you can and if a law is broken call the cops because you will not be the one that gets in trouble i wish i had told myself that is that so many times feared or yeah i always feared that like my parent because the incident with my mom i got her sent to a mental institution Hmm. um and she's still mad at me for that and I always feared that they would lie to the cops and have me sent. So, Away. yeah. Or I was I was in fear of going to foster care because I didn't have another parent. So, yeah. And it's I think kids in those situations just feel like they have so few options. Yeah, and also I wish I would have said something to somebody at school. Yep. I did not say enough to my teachers. And I wish I would have because I protected my dad a lot. And yeah, I, I, I'd say tell somebody. I always think that's a tip off. If you find yourself protecting your parent, you know what I mean? Holding their secrets or protecting them from other adults, it's a tip off that, that yeah. something, is, something is very wrong. One of the things I was just thinking about is like you've gone through by the time you get to college a lot of really tough stuff already. Yeah. Um, you've got these emerging sort of like physical symptoms coming on and you know it sounds like just based on what you're saying by by family history by physical things by or I guess family history is the wrong word for it, but the history of your nuclear family. Yeah. Um, that it was inevitable that this would become too much of a a mental weight. How did it how did it affect you? Um, I still am learning how to deal with a lot of the trauma um every day. So I um I'll be honest, um I did self-harm for a long time and just I I don't know how to explain it but like being able to feel physical pain whenever you're emotionally hurting really mm-hmm. kind of like allowed me to understand like why I was feeling that way I don't know how oh no good way it to makes, explain it oh it makes perfect sense because I think a lot of people have lots of misconceptions about self-harm and like the common misconception is that self-harm is attention seeking. But what we know from the research and the science and the clinical experience is that most self-harm, you know, if you think about it, you're a 15 year old kid, you need permission to go to the bathroom. Like you need to actually get a pass to go to the bathroom. You don't have a car, you can't drive, you have control over very little except for your body. That's the one thing you can control. And your options are, you know, self-harm can come in lots of forms. It can come in not eating, for example. It can come in high-risk physical activities while playing sports. It can come in cutting. 
can come in lots of different ways, but to some extent, it's very much about control. And then the other thing we know about physically self-harming, and I remember this moment when I was a kid and I was running in this field near our house and I ran into, we were playing a game of hide and seek, and I ran into barbed wire from an old farm that had been there and it cut open the front of my leg. And everyone was like, good Lord, are you okay? And I was standing up and I was just fine. Because all the adrenaline, all the cortisol, everything was rushing to my body. And later, as I got into mental health, I realized what I just got when my body reacted to that was a giant painkiller and a giant um, antidepressant. Yeah. And that, you know, we know when people cut, it mimics in a, in a way the same things that you get from antidepressants. Now, the downside is you can physically harm yourself, unlike uh, most antidepressants, but there's a real rational reason why people self-harm. Very much about like, and that's why you have so many people who self-harm during their teenage years or years where they don't have a sense of control. And as they develop a little bit more control over more things, that behavior often fades away. And I am glad you brought it up because I think it's a a topic that there are so many misconceptions around, which get in the way of actually uh, helping the real issues that people are struggling through in those moments. Yeah. And you talked about um, other forms of self-harm too. And in college, I took a LGBTQ class that basically explained the history of gay and lesbian culture. And it was very eye-opening and very interesting. And I loved it. Mm. And there I learned about demisexuality and I learned that I was demisexual, which is you only feel a sexual arousal if you have an emotional attachment. Well, you're one of two people on this call <laughs> who fit that same definition. Did I tell you that? I have no. an episode where I yeah, I have an episode where I a bonus episode where I talk about realizing, you know, through an assortment of things, some friends, but like you know, my ex, she was my partner for like 10 years. We grew up when she was, when we were, um, we we met each other when we were 14. And then in our, in our 30s, we got back together. And she used to say toward the end of a relationship that you're asexual. And I was like, that's a funny joke, right? And, like, ah, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> and so years later, when I told her, I'm like, I am demisexual, I figured out, she's like, you're just figuring it out because the rest of us already <laughs> did a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, so I learned about demisexuality. And um, as a teenager, I would often, um, you know, experiment, I guess is the word, or just like, you know, mm -hmm. sleep around. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't trying to feel the same thing that everybody else is. Yeah, and but like kind of get control of my body, I guess, because I didn't have control when I was home. So when I was out, I did have control of myself. And I guess that's kind of the reason. But yeah, I would sleep around even though I wasn't attracted to these people and it would physically hurt. And yeah, that I guess that's another way of self-harm. And I, yeah. I always noticed that it was like an outlet for me like when I was younger because being autistic and demisexual, I didn't – and not being – not knowing about those things as a teenager, I was wild. So <laughs> – mm -hmm.
being able to figure out why I didn't enjoy it when I was supposed to. And like, it all made sense. So I was like, okay. And also why you still did it to your point of the like self-harm, this thing where, you know, cause I think maybe people have a hard time understanding it, but you know, you're not really going to, without emotional intimacy, really uh, be able to have what people traditionally consider sexual attraction. Yeah. And so, so to do something like that probably fits within that, that same same category. You know, one of the things that really strikes me about you, Shay, in general, both in this interview and your podcast and pretty much any interaction I see you having, is like your willingness to be so unbelievably vulnerable to kind of like bear yourself. Is there a reason for that? I, I feel it's very intentional on your part. I feel like... A lot of that is the autism. I'm very bad at lying. Um, <laughs> so it's very easy for me to be brutally honest. Um, that's part of the thing with autism. A lot of us are very brutally honest, um, and it gets us in trouble a lot. Uh, it also helps because we're never <laughs> we're never wondering about where you stand. So that is one upside. Yeah, but... So that's helped a ton. (laughs) And also, I think not enough people are genuine anymore. Um, Hmm. What do you mean by genuine? Like, I don't know. Like, whenever I was in college, I met a lot of people that I would tell them, like, little glimpses of my story. And then they'd open up to me. And I think being able to be vulnerable to other people allows them to be vulnerable with you. And if everybody would be vulnerable, the world would be a much better place. There would be so many more bridges between us. Yeah. You know, there'd be so many more um, bridges between us. And I, you know, someone once said to me, um, you know, they were listening to me talk about something that's just so natural to me, which is like my time at the New York times and the fabrication and plagiarism that I did there. And they said, you talk about it so openly and you so own it that it opened the door for me to talk about some of the, what they perceived to be the worst mistakes that they, they made. And I felt like in that moment, as this person was telling me this, we were sitting down at a dinner. I was like, okay, whole podcast, all the hours of working, all the other pieces to it, worth it for this one moment to give this one person this chance to free themselves of the shame that they were associating with the thing that they did. Yeah. Well, one of the things I was just sort of like thinking about in general, like how did the idea of turning it into a podcast, because I have to imagine it was like scary to, to make the effort. Like how did, how did that part of it come about? So, at True Crime Podcast Festival Austin this past year, I met the Landrys, which, if y'all don't know, Jason went missing in 2020, I think. Yeah, 2020. Yeah, December of 2020. 2020. Um, yeah. And Luling, Texas, and me and him had mutual friends, so the day he went missing, uh, his face was flooding my Instagram feed. 
but we had mutual friends. And so getting to meet his parents and tell him, tell them how much of an impact that their son had on me was really important to me. And it got me thinking like, okay, Jason went missing driving home from college, which every single kid does, which I've done a million times. This could have been prevented somehow, some way. Mm. And I wanted to be able to give people safety tips while traveling and give families a chance to tell their story and tell them, tell us about their loved one. And I just, is this what inspired your first episode? Like your first few episodes had great advice around some of these topics on that? Yeah. So I really wanted to focus on like a good safety aspect because I feel like if maybe if Jason knew to share his location with his dad or something like before he left that somehow this could have been prevented and he would still be here with his parents. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't want any other child or teenager or college student going missing. Um, and I realized there's no other Gen Z podcaster in the true crime space. And I was like, okay, there's nobody else here. Um, I'm here already. I already know all these people. Why not just do it? So I jumped in. I I couldn't think of a name. I couldn't think of a name. And then I was rewatching Law and Order SVU and uh, organized crime. And Olivia got a compass from Elliot. And I was like, true compass. That's it. <laughs> that's perfect. That's perfect. I the that is a because I, I I think that there's something to that idea that people today feel as if they don't have a compass, they don't have something pointing them in a direction, you know, like their own values. They don't even necessarily know what they are, and or like then, people can't trust their in um their gut instincts. Yeah. 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 Yeah, right, right, right. That maybe it's pointing them in a direction, but they don't trust that that's that's the right that's the right way to ultimately go. I'm curious, what have some of your uh, favorite episodes or interviews been on the podcast? Uh, my interview with the Landrys, first and foremost, um, that one was really important to me. And then I also did an interview with Brett Cross, who lost his son in Uvalde. <laughs> that one broke my heart to do. And that was the 20, was that 2021 shooting at yes. the school in Uvalde? Yeah. yeah. And that one was just so hard to do. Um, he was one of the fathers? or Yeah, he lost his son. Son, yeah. Um, but... Being from Texas, if you are from Texas, you know of the Frio um, in Garner State Park, and Uvalde is just right outside of that. It's a beautiful part of Texas. It's where I learned how to dance, like line dancing and two-stepping and stuff. Um, 
So it's a really special place for a lot of Texans. My mom crashed her motorcycle out there and almost died. So (laughs) holds a really special place in my heart. So whenever I heard the shooting had happened, I knew something had to change. And I know that not a lot of our friends have covered mass shootings. And it's really important to me. So I wanted to definitely cover Uvalde, especially because of how much that part of Texas means to me. And because of those kids, there were 19 kids that died that day, and I wanted to honor them. Right. 19 that just didn't need to on so many levels. And two teachers. And two teachers, so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate what you're doing. I think that we need voices that care that much. You know, I think that, um, you know, in all the debate about whether true crime podcasting or all sorts of things, journalism goes through this periodically, our entertainment or not, like, I think that at the end of the day, whatever it is, empathetic, compassionate people who are more focused on doing something good than their own fame or something along those lines are critical. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with um, such delicate cases like Uvalde and Jason Landry, who's still missing, like his parents don't know where he is. And yeah, I I have a big heart for those those people. Yeah, and handling their cases with care, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um I wanted to make sure that, because I've seen a ton of TikToks of other true crime podcasts getting the story wrong and the family speaking out about it, and I didn't want to be that person, so. Yeah. And even, you know, details that are true, one of the things that I learned in journalism was that you don't have to share every detail. You share the relevant details, and when a detail will do more harm than good and isn't central to the story, you know, it might be salacious, it might add more color, but the ethical thing to do is if it's not necessary and it causes more harm than good to not use it. And I think those, like when we talk about like true crime ethics or ethics in general when it comes to publishing things or sharing or communicating it, You know, I think some of it can get wrapped up in the idea of like advocacy or not advocacy or advocacy or journalism. But I think in all of it, whether you're an advocate, an entertainer, or a journalist, like just try to do more good than harm. Absolutely. And um, I'm starting comedy pretty soon. And oh, nice. Yeah. um, (laughs) One of the comedians I've been having as like a mentor told me about the economy of words and how to use less words in a set. And I, I was thinking about that with true crime too. You can use less words to tell a story and still get your point across. Um, Sometimes even more powerfully. Yeah. So what I wanted to do with my podcast is not necessarily focus on the crime, but focus on who that person, if there was a victim, or if there is a living family member who can tell us a little bit more about that person while they were here so we can humanize them 
and not make it about entertainment and make it about get to knowing our people that we lost and remembering them. I think that's really important. I was going to ask you, you know, just as we're getting to wrap up, like one of the things that really strikes me about what you've said is like, you're trying to bring knowledge into the world to help people essentially, whether it's keep them safe or, or any other form of sort of helping them. But they're like, when I think of, and I listen to your story, in a lot of ways, you're like a survivor, right? Like you were, were a victim of some things. And I don't know whether you, you see it that way, but certainly from my chair, it feels like this. And then there were caretakers. And there were caretakers in your life who were supportive, like the teachers you described, and helpful, like the mentors that you've described. Yeah. And then there were caretakers who were not. And I was wondering, as we sort of wrap up, I wanted to give you a chance to share any closing thoughts. But one thing that I'm curious about is, what message would you have to people who are in those roles, like caretakers or people who may not be sure that they're being treated in a appropriate or fair like way, like what message would you have for them? Take care of yourself first, first and foremost. Don't try to focus on making anybody else's life better because you deserve to make your life better. And just be there for people. If somebody reaches out randomly, message them back. You never know what they'll need, especially if you know somebody who may be going through a hard time or has chronic illness or mental health issues. Just be there for them. That's really what I ask of people. <laughs> I hear you. That's a great message. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your story. It's powerful. I appreciate you being so open and so vulnerable, I think people just hearing your words and hearing you talk like this will not only give them hope about things and a new way of thinking things, but you know, you may be surprised about the number of people who see you showing this kind of strength through humility and vulnerability who realize like they can make it through whatever they're going through. And, you know, we may never hear from that person. They may never email us or write us. They might, but I have no doubt that they're out there and they're listening right now and they feel a little more hope and strength because of you. That's all I hope for because I know I've been in a place where I thought the only way out was out. So if somebody decides to stick around and be here. I'm so grateful for that. If you'd like to join us for more discussions with us and our listeners, we can be found on most social media platforms, including the listener-run Facebook group called the Silver Linings Fireside Chat. For deeper conversations with our guests and live conversations with other listeners, you can join us on our Patreon at www.patreon.com dot com forward slash the silver linings handbook.